The build to rent community really is a winning model. I think that it's good for both sides. Um, you know, it's it's efficient for the builders, the developers. Um, it's it's something that can be traded entirely very easily. Um, and and so I think that it makes a lot of sense, and I think we're going to see more of it. Welcome to the A Fire Podcast, now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Long predicted by demographers who saw the coming increase of households not offset by new construction. The U.S. is now experiencing a housing shortage, and it's going to take a lot of work to fix it. The NAR reported in June that we will have to build 2.1 million homes a year for the next 10 years just to catch up with demand. Prices are climbing, and not just because of COVID. Renting your home has never been more appealing for more people. So to help kind of unpack that trend and where it's going and what the opportunity might be for investors, that's why we're really fortunate to have here today on the podcast uh, a couple of people to help us unpack uh, what this trend is and what we can do about it as investors. So we have John Thomas, who's a partner and leads the global real estate practice for Squire Patton Boggs, and Stacy Crewman, also a partner and a member of Squire Patton Boggs Global Board. Uh, to open this up. So Stacy, John, thank you so much for joining me on the A-Fire podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. So, um, you know, the single family uh, invest, investable market where institutions were, were investing in rent to rent single family homes really seemed to start around the GFC. Um, but I, I believe it's changed quite a bit. Can, can the two of you kind of give me kind of to start with a picture of what is what is this rent of single family homes business look like today uh, versus where it was maybe 12 years ago? Stacy, you want to give a start on that? Sure. I think there's been a lot of changes since then. So coming out of the financial crisis, institutional investors were uh, buying portfolios of you know foreclosed upon houses or uh, you know one-off type type of single family homes, you know, one on a, on a, on a block of others that were, you know, owned. And so, uh, now what that has, uh, really evolved into is, uh, builders, developers, investors, uh, building entire communities of homes to be, uh, ultimately used as rental products, single family. And, and so it's, it's a much different model, uh, likely, you know, much more efficient from an operational perspective. And so that's, that's really um, it's just super hot right now. Um, now, that being said, I do still see uh, clients, some institutional money going behind snapping up, you know, individual properties or individual lots and then building a house ultimately uh, for, you know, rent. However, it seems like the, you know, the big the build to rent communities is, is what is really gaining, you know, momentum and popularity. So of the build to rent communities, John, what, who is getting involved? Who are the institutions and, and what level of commitment are they making to this? I, at this point, institutions 
are still a minor player in it. I mean, we're seeing large home builders, you know, the Lennars, tall, you know, others like that are active in the space. And Wall Street, you know, has backed them. You know, we've seen some of the big investment banks, you know, help raise money for large projects, large investments in it. Uh, but at this point, you know, everything we've read, the typical institutions that you would see by multifamily or office or industrial, any other category, have not embraced this product as much. Mm -hmm. and, and yet there's some significant names like Blackstone or... Right. I mean, you, and, and, and by the way, I should say this for everyone who's listening. Uh, there, there's a, you know, actually an excellent article on this in the most recent uh, edition of A Fire Summit written by John and Stacy on this very subject. So if there's anything that you want to go deeper in, I would certainly recommend everyone go online and take a look at that. Um, but yeah, John, I mean, it seems like there's, these are significant institutions and, and some of them even members of AFIRE that are involved. In sure. This. And, you know, following up on what Stacy was saying, you know, the community model it appears to be really attractive as an investment class. When you're building single family rental communities, in a way you're getting the best of both worlds of multifamily where you have, as a resident, you have the amenities, the professional management, you don't have maintenance obligations, you know, but, but you still have the, you know, the benefits of a single family home and a yard, and that makes it very attractive. And, you know, what we're seeing in those communities is, you know, what they would call more stickiness. There's less turnover, much greater percentage of renewals. And with that, you know, along with the demand, uh, rents tend to be increasing faster in those type communities than we're seeing in multifamily now. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned demand. Stacy. do you, can you give a picture of, of what is driving the demand for this kind of rental housing? What, what What's really kind of propelling it in volume at this point? Sure. I think there are a number of things. Um, one being a, a lack of supply of housing uh, for those entering the market. If you consider the fact that, you know, millennials are the largest um, generation in American history to, you know, be entering the housing market at a certain time, you've got a, a just a simple, you know, supply and demand issue. So that's driving up prices, which takes more people out of the, the market to be able to afford a house. Or, you know, when you compare your mortgage price to the, you know, rents and consider down payments. And uh, so it's pushing a lot more people to be forced to rent because they simply can't buy. Now, uh, separately, I think there's a sort of psychology element to this, sociology, where you've got a generation that values different things than earlier generations, such as flexibility. Um, you know, they, they tend to move jobs more frequently. Uh, they more more interested in, you know, a dynamic, interesting, meaningful career as m more so than than traditionally, you know, stability. Uh, and predictability with um, our sort of older generations. And so they also, you know, they want the ability to pick up and move easier, which is typically easier when you're in a rental product, and spend more of their disposable income on, you know, experience type things like taking vacations. And so, you know, then they, and then on top of that, they're a generation that's coming out of college with, astronomical amounts of student loan debt. So 
makes it harder to save up for the down payment. And I think it also generally makes them more averse to debt. So they like the idea of being you know, debt-free once they get their loans paid off and just pay rent and less to worry about. Yeah, I, I wonder too, Stacey, and, and John, maybe you want to come out on this. If, if part of it, it's not just lifestyle, and, and, and certainly we've talked a bit about that in terms of, of the millennial generation, um, and I think it's true, but I wonder too if there's a bit of a risk assessment that's taking place as well. Even if they have the money, and some do, to perhaps buy a house, still not buy a house, um, I wonder if, if perhaps that's seen as a riskier bet, especially given the great financial crisis, especially given the, the, very, the very dramatic uh, outcomes of, of global warming in some of our most populous markets. Um, John, do you think that, that there's a risk assessment that's going on as well? Certainly. Uh, and I think you've nailed it. You know, we have people that, you know, the great financial crisis was not that long ago, and it was a shock to everyone because we've been told all our lives the best investment you can make is your own home. It's the American dream. It is the source of wealth and your retirement. You know, it's your retirement nest egg is the equity you will build in your home. And, you know, probably for the first time in any of our lifetimes, we saw housing values drop dramatically. I think the last time that happened was, you know, in the early 90s, perhaps, where I have some friends from school that actually, you know, sold homes at a loss when they had their jobs transferred. So, you know, you combine that with a lot of the points Stacy made about, you know, a generation that wants flexibility and the ability to change jobs and, you know, it's just, it's fewer ties and it, you know, does create, a, you could almost argue a sense of freedom that, you know, if you are tired of this area or your job, you can pick up and go and not have to deal with selling a house and paying off a mortgage and things like that. But, you know, the other part of this, though, it's not just the millennials, though. I mean, we're seeing a lot of baby boomers who, when they downsize, will instead of, you know, buying a condo in the city or a condo at the beach are attracted to this because, again, it gives them some of the amenities they're used to in terms of a house, smaller size, and less responsibility for maintenance, which is probably the last thing you want to do in retirement. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, the uh, the way you described the, the, the desire to be able to pick up and go uh, and the ability to change jobs and all these kinds of things without without incurring extra cost. Uh, certainly a lot of these COVID trends in terms of people saying, you know what, this job is not where I want to go, and maybe I want to do this instead that maybe doesn't make as much money, but is more what I want to do, or all these kinds of, I don't know if they're trends yet, uh, just because the New York Times says they are, they're not necessarily yet. It may be a little premature, but hearing you speak that way, I started realizing, you know, that, you know, part of what we're seeing is a, is a society trends society changes, and it's expressing itself in the real estate. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, both, you know, and I, I don't think it's limited to single family rentals or, you know, housing. We're going to see, you know, trends changing in how offices are used and demand for office space. And I mean, we've already seen through COVID a variety of changes, you know, increased demand for logistics and industrial space and, you know, and just another body blow to retail. So yeah, we're, it's, it's an exciting time in real estate because things are changing and, you know, 
you just have to be aware of what's going on to look for the opportunities. Absolutely. Although I could do with a few less body blows over the next uh, couple of years. I, I feel like I've had <laughs> enough of them. Um, it'd be nice to calm that down a little bit. Um, so, uh, Stacy, when, when you think about the demand as it's been, how do you think it might evolve uh, in the years to come? But also specifically, COVID has really messed with us, uh, at least the last couple of years of it in terms of a lot of behaviors. How do you think, as you think forward in terms of demand for this kind of product, is it going to continue to increase as it has over the last year? Or is it going to be uh, mitigated a bit by the fact that not everyone eventually uh, will be worried about getting sick? I mean, that's certainly our sort of big unknown at the moment. And as we sit here today talking, the, you know, we all were optimistic that once the vaccine came out, we were at the, you know, sort of beginning of the end of COVID and things today don't look as certain, you know, from that perspective with variants and, and lack of, um, you know, buy-in for, for getting vaccinated you know, among the, among the Americans. And so it's really hard to say. And, but I do think a lot of it's going to be very location specific, which is, you know, typical for real estate. Originally location, 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 right? So, you know, for instance, in Florida, we're seeing so many people moving down here from big cities and deciding to, you know, just permanently work remote. And or you're seeing companies, um, you know, entirely, you know, relocate New York to South Florida or, or what have you. I mean, I was at dinner the other night and just struck up a conversation with a guy who's Manhattan lawyer and exactly what we were thinking was happening. I'm like, OK, this is an actual example. It's not I'm not just reading it in the news. And um, so that's uh, definitely going to be a trend. And when you see that a lot of these communities are being built in Sunbelt states, that makes sense there. So I think that's going to drive demand for a while, uh, you know, until we really get past this and, and people, you know, the, the memories, the short memories kick in. <laughs> but um, so that's, that's kind of, that's what I think. And then also, you know, related to John's comment on, you know, what's going to happen with the office, if companies are likely, what we're seeing is they're going to be forced to adopt at, at least you know, some sort of hybrid work from home model for people like lawyers who are typically your biggest occupiers of space in downtown markets. So if somebody knows that they only have to come into the office two or three days a week, it's going to make an impact on, on their housing decision. Well, when we think about, uh, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the environment. We've talked a little bit about demographics and you know, both subjects, I'm sure, are rabbit holes that we could spend the next hour easily uh, talking about each. Uh, but I do want to hit a little bit about how kind of the tax and regulatory environment is, is kind of conspiring to a certain extent uh, in the favor of this asset class. Uh, and, and specifically in terms of there being less and less of a tax advantage. Uh, for uh, owners of homes and mortgage uh, owners, uh, so so John, can you can you kind of give a picture of how the landscape itself is changing because of tax and regulatory shifts? Sure, I, I think again, if you look at the cap on state and local tax deductions, it's naturally fed the trend because the higher tax states, the New Yorks, the New Jerseys, the Californias, you know 
home ownership is not quite the bargain it used to be. And those also happen to be expensive states in a lot of ways to buy a house. And that feeds into the trend Stacy was talking about, where a lot of these rentals are in the Sun Belt. It's places like Florida, Arizona, Texas, where you have little or no state income tax. So the impact of the salt cap is less important and where you have lots of land and, you know, more professional development going on, driving down the costs of these developments, it makes them more attractive as rentals and very competitive with home buying at this point. Even with, you know, absurdly low interest rates that we have now on your home mortgage, but it's still very competitive. There is a point where absurdly low interest rates can't kind of push the the needle at all. I mean, that, that it, you know, yeah. if, you know, a million dollars is a million dollars, you know, even if it's cheap debt to do it, it's hard for a lot of people. And and I think that's mm -hmm. something to. One of the other regulatory things, though, that, you know, the market needs to look out for, you know, and this is, you know, as old as time in real estate, and that's local, you know, NIMBYs and zoning. You know, there's a reason we have a housing shortage in the country, and it's not that home builders don't want to build them. It's, you know, pushback from the locals about building and, I think the single family rental community has kind of gone under the radar for the most part, but just as there's pushback against multifamily, I think you should eventually expect, at least in some communities, there'll be pushback against this product as well. I anticipate as well, but I wonder, will the housing shortage uh, have any pushback towards zoning that you know dates to the 1960s and, and nimbyism and everything else that's really kind of it's gotten us into this jam. It's been a major contributor to being in this housing shortage jam. Do you think there's going to be any energy towards, hey, maybe we should assess what our zoning codes are and we can maybe assess what we're doing here? I, I think that's a tough one because you're, you know, the local government is so interested mostly in being reelected. So they're forced to you know, play to the constituents who are there, you know, raising these concerns, which are oftentimes, you know, have have no merit to them. Um, you know, I've I've seen I've seeing this play out right now with a number of developments with incredibly strong opposition, despite the fact that it's, you know, there's zoning and land use approvals all in place and plans being submitted that are fully compliant with the code and just delay after delay and you can't get staff reports and you, they won't you give you a public hearing because these you know homeowners form these alliances and and uh just blow up the local governments and they're so they're they're operating you know from a i think place of fear in a lot of ways there you know being reelected and, you know, otherwise, you know, being subject to challenge claim later and having to spend their taxpayer dollars dealing with that, which are, you know, really strained now due to, you know, COVID. You know, it's, it's interesting when you think about the timelines for this, how long it takes to go from, you know, plan to, to buildings. It's about six or seven years. Um, we're nowhere near at a pace of 2.1 million homes a year, as NAR put in their statistics, um, we could very well be going from a housing shortage to a housing crisis. And I just, 
I wonder what that point is because at that point ch- change will have to happen. Uh, you know, if things cannot stand, they won't. Uh, that it will kind of go into a different direction. But I, I do think it's a real concern, not just for, for real estate folks. And and certainly, you know, I listen to developers and, you know, they, they're they miserable. You know, they, they want to build, they can build, they've got everything that they need to do it. The supply chain is wonky, but they can work around it. The problem is that they can't convince the city that actually an apartment building would be a good idea, or, you know, maybe a, a, a rental subdivision would be a good idea uh, in terms of bringing new people in and making uh, housing more affordable. Um, so where do you think this is going? And I want to hear from both of you on this in, in terms of what, what do you see coming on the horizon, the future? Uh, what are you excited about? You know, coming out of the financial crisis, you saw a huge apartment built, like, you know, multifamily was the thing then. And that was because all of a sudden, you know, the, any a person's ability to obtain a mortgage to buy a house went from, you know, likely to highly unlikely, you know. And so I think that um, I, I think that this model makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really just sort of the smart evolution of, of you know, like buying the portfolio of, of scattered homes. Um, and, you know, it's the other thing, there's some, a lot of efficiencies when you think about financing. Uh, if you've got scattered lot portfolio, it makes it, a lot of banks don't want to look at that because traditional commercial real estate lenders are saying, well, okay, I'm going to have to have a mortgage on, you know, all of these properties and we're going to have to do diligence on each one of them, a phase one, you know, surveys. And they're like this, I don't even want to touch this. But then, so you really would have to, you're looking at having to build a portfolio and, you know, finance it really using like a mezzanine structure, private lenders. And so it does sort of, it changes the the landscape a bit there in your cost structure. And so I, I think that that's another reason that it will continue to be popular. Um, on top of that, it, it's got flexibility in the exit strategy because for instance, you could, structure, you know, you're, think of your, again, your single uh, contiguous lot with all single family rental homes. You could, that could be one lot, you know, from a, from a zoning perspective, uh, or you could plat it. And so if you plat it, then you, you'd have the ability to sell the lots off, you know, single and, you know, by the one or 10 or, or whatever. So it gives, there's some nice flexibility there, whereas, you know, with with an apartment building, you either have to sell the whole thing or convert it to a condo, which is, you know, kind of unlikely in a very different model, although that did happen a fair amount during the lead up to the global financial crisis. Yeah, I, I love this model. I mean, before I was a lawyer, I actually was in the multifamily property management business. So I, I'm really, you know, fascinated watching the same things we did in multifamily be applied on a larger scale, you know, with single family homes and taking, you know, that, you know, and multifamily's always been, I think, considered one of the safer investments in real estate. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's where a lot of developers get their start and you move on from multifamily. And I think this brings a lot of those same benefits and, I think it's just going to be really fascinating to watch how the industry evolves as you get more 
more institutional investors, more professional players, because it's, you know, it's not just home building, you know, you do have a heavy operational side and you, you know, the, the kind of homes you build as starter homes are very different than the kind of home you build here because, you know, as we mentioned in the article, you want to buy appliances that will last longer and are lower maintenance. Your floorings and other materials, you want to be low maintenance because it is your responsibility to maintain them. So, you know, there's a different cost model on the construction. The flip side is, you know, when you're buying, when you're building for sale, anyone that's done this, you get this menu of choices and color options and appliance options and cabinet options. So in a way you're doing a lot of mini customizing with your home building here, you don't have to, you can buy in bulk, which gets you more efficiencies. You can have them look the same like you do in multifamily. So there's great efficiencies there. And I think we're just sort of at the front end of really learning how to, you know, make this even more profitable. And I think that's going to be really interesting to watch and see how they develop with amenities to make it even more attractive. And then just watching the different groups of the population that will be interested in this. And my gut tells me that this will continue to be a growing area and become a very attractive investment class. Fascinating. I really am intrigued by how this is going to evolve because you're right. It does feel like it's at the beginning stages still, even though a lot has happened in the last 10 years. Um, I would encourage anyone, again, who is listening to make sure you go to the summer issue of AFIRE Summit. You can go to afire.org right from the front page um, and read the article by John and Stacy. the title of which is Build to Rent Boom kind of clear about what it is. And, uh, you know, I really encourage you perhaps even to follow up with Stacy and John on some of their insights. So uh, we have run out of time, uh, but I want to thank you both uh, for sharing your thoughts, uh, both in the article and, and here during our podcast. So thank you for joining the AFIRE podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Connor. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice to this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.